Amen, amen, amen. Awesome. Thank you, Kevin. Thank you, worship team. Well, good morning again. How y'all doing? How y'all feel? I feel like it's our first like day of briskness, yes. It's like hoodie weather's coming. I'm pumped. Um, man, like I said, I'm Corey, and I'm the student pastor here, and it's good to be with you this morning. As we open up and study God's Word, I'm thankful for the opportunity as Pastor Kenneth got to get away and have some retreat time this past week, and so uh, as he's planning our next sermon series. And so, yeah, if you, uh, I want to ask you a question, I guess, to think about this as we get started in today's discussion this morning is, do you remember what it was like to play pretend? To actually, like, play make-believe, right? It's something that we were taught at a very young age, and I was taught, like many 90s kids... Uh, by this man uh, that they're going to put up on the screen here in the Ministers of Magnification. Yes, right? Mr. Rogers, he came right on right after Bob Ross's Painting Happy Trees. And Mr. Rogers would have this moment where he would say, okay, now we're going to travel with the trolley and we're going to go into the land of make-believe. And as a little kid, I remember looking at the television thinking that is my, you know, my neighbor, right? That is my neighbor, Mr. Rogers. And he would talk about different and hard and difficult discussions and as kids, but learning, like, my imagination and inspiration was just unlocked. And then as, you know, your inspiration and your imagination keep going, you start playing different kinds of pretend. Maybe you played house as a kid. Maybe you played teacher. For me, I love playing cops and robbers, right? Because I was faster than my younger brother, and so I always won, right? If, whether I was the cop or the robber. And so maybe also my younger brother, he was, his favorite football player was Randy Moss. And so we would get my younger brother, his name's Caleb, me and my older brother Chad would say, Caleb, go get your jersey. And he put on his purple Randy Moss jersey, and we would have smoke bombs left over from Halloween. We would light those, and then Caleb would run through the smoke like he was like Super Bowl, Super Bowl Sunday, right? He was pretending he was Randy Moss. For me personally, it was my favorite baseball player. I would pretend to be the swing man himself, King Griffey Jr., Okay, and so all of a sudden, King Griffey Jr. then became right-handed, and I would have his beautiful stance, and I would have his swing, and, you know, it'd be like I'm hitting home run derby, right, and just King Griffey just doing his baseball swing, or I'd pretend that, hey, it is bottom nine, full count, bases loaded, have my little brother throw me a wiffle ball, and then I'd like swing and miss, but just kidding, there was actually only one strike, and then I would pretend more, and then I would hit the game-winning walk-off grand slam. That was what we would pretend turn my hat around backwards, pretend I was King Griffey Jr. But if I'm honest, I think that playing pretend and playing make-believe is something that we really don't grow out of that much. It might change, it might shift, but as adults, there are still moments when we pretend. It is something that I struggle with, feeling like I have to perform, like I'm one way at home, or, and then I have to perform for people out in public, or I have to be a different person, act like everything is okay. When in reality, life is spinning into chaos. And so, if you would, we're going to open the Bible. Today might feel like a Bible beatdown, um, but I promise there is good news, okay, at the end. So if you would, grab your Bible, turn with me to Mark. Just kidding, just kidding. Sorry. <laughs> Second Samuel, he's like, no way, surely not. No, I'm kidding. Second Samuel. Second Samuel chapter 12. Second Samuel chapter 12. And as you're turning there, if you would, I'm going to pray for us. As we study God's word together, let's pray. Father, would you give us eyes to see? Would you give us ears to hear your word? Lord, would you help us to understand? Would you give me the words to speak clearly and clearly communicate your love um, for the nations and your, the gift of friendship that we can have, the gift of community? Father, we love you and we trust you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Okay, so 
We're going to be in Samuel, uh, 2 Samuel chapter 12, but in order to get into this story, I need to prep you. I need to tell you what's happened in chapter 11. And so this is where we're going to look. We're going to look at this moment between two best friends where Nathan has a conversation with David. But before that, I need to prep you. So in chapter 11, David is king. And the Israelites are at war, and it is springtime because, you know, nobody wants to fight in the cold or when there's no food. And so it is good weather, and it is the springtime, and the army is off in a place called Rabbah, okay? And they're fighting the Ammonites, and it was, what's special is as the army is fighting the Ammonites, David remains chilling in the palace, and he's eating bagel bites, okay? And so David is not with the army. David decides, you know what, I feel whatever, like y'all are good, y'all go for it. And so he sends the army off and they're fighting. And late one afternoon he is walking on the roof and he sees Bathsheba, who is the wife of Uriah the Hittite, who happens to be, Uriah happens to be one of David's top 40 soldiers. So he is off at war. And not only that, but Eliam, Eliam is Bathsheba's father, is a personal bodyguard to David. And on top of that, Ahithophel, if you don't know how to say a name in the Bible, just say it fast, okay? Hook on phonics, Ahithophel, okay? Ahithophel is Bathsheba's granddad, would have been a counselor to David. And so he sees Bathsheba and she's bathing naked on the roof. And so David didn't necessarily sign up to falling into sin. However, he comes to this crossroad of temptation and he has to make a choice. And he is so mesmerized by Bathsheba's beauty that he loses sight because he's not in love with God. And he goes and he sends his servants to bring her to his house. And David sleeps with Bathsheba. And Bathsheba gets pregnant. And the Bible is very clear, church. The Bible is very clear that Bathsheba was actually on her cycle before Uriah left for war, okay? So no Mori Povich needed, right? Uriah is not the father. David, you are the father, okay? It is very clear that this is not Uriah's child, but it is, in fact, David's. And so when David hears the news, he sends the word to Joab. Joab is the leader of the army. So Joab is head, head of all of the army that David has commissioned to go forth. And he sends to Joab, and he says, hey, I want you to send Uriah back to me. And he sends Uriah back, and in this moment, David is trying to cover up his sin. He's trying to cover up the bad situation that he's in. And so what he does, he says, Uriah, hey, man, great job. You're doing great out and, you know, fighting and everything. But, man, just as a gift, I want to give you some time with your wife. Go ahead. The Bible says wash your feet, meaning like, hey, lay with your wife. I want you to, like, you know, spend some quality time together. And Uriah being an up right man. He says, no, I can't do that. He says, all my buddies, all my friends, all my other guys, they don't get that opportunity. They don't get to spend time with their wives. They're out at war. Why can I do that? And so Uriah sleeps on the steps. And then David says, well, that didn't work. So you know what? How about this? I'm going to cater the meal. He says, come on in, Uriah. You come on. And he gets Uriah drunk. He says, listen, come on, brother. Keep on drinking. Maybe if Uriah's a little bit tipsy, he'll have not as wise decisions and he'll go home and he will sleep with his wife. And even in that attempt, he's like, listen, I'm playing for date night. Go, go, bail me out of this. And Uriah does not do it. You're not Uriah, again, being loyal, being upright. He sleeps on the steps. 
And so then David says, you know what, well, that obviously did not work. And so he has this mastermind, he has this plan, and he says, you know what, I'm going to send Uriah back to Joab. And he says, oh, Uriah, the reason why I brought you back, I need to send you back to Joab. Here's a letter. And in that letter, Uriah is holding his own death sentence. And he's holding this piece of paper that comes, and he's holding this letter, and he goes back to Joab, and he says, here, this is what David told me to give you. And Uriah goes back. Joab opens the letter, and it says, I want you to put Uriah on the front lines. I want you to put Uriah right up against the wall. Just military strategy back in the day, that's a bad idea. And he goes and he says, yeah, yeah, go ahead, send the army, and when you're up where the fighting is the heaviest, then I want you to pull back. And so he puts all these men at risk, and a bunch of people die, and one of those is Uriah. Uriah dies. And so not only has David committed adultery, but he's also committed murder. He's used the sword of the Ammonites to concoct this plan, and it works. And so when the news comes back to David and he hears that Uriah has died, he's so calloused, so calloused to the destruction that has taken place because his plan to cover up his sin has worked. And he takes Bathsheba to be his wife, and she has a son. And so this is about a year later where we pick up 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 1. It says this. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. And he came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the, rich, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he had brought it up, and it grew up with him, with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guests who had come to him, but he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing and because he had no pity." And Nathan said to David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul, and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if it were too little, I would add to you much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword. And have taken his wife to be your wife, and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me, and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. So, so what? Let's recap what just happened. Nathan comes to David. He comes to his friend, and he confronts him on the sin. He tells him this parable. He says, listen, there's a poor man. He has one little lamb that he is basically his daughter. He, like, loves this little lamb. Then there's a rich guy. He has tons of lambs. He's got cows. He's got everything. He has everything he needs. And as a traveler comes, he's like, well, listen, I need to prepare dinner. He takes the man's lamb and cooks it. He straight cooks it for dinner of the poor man. And David just wells up with this anger, right? He's like, he's responding with anger towards the person that represents him in the story. Nathan says, you are the man. And it's not like, huh, you the man. It's like, you are that man, dude. You are the man that is represented in that story. 
And so this is to show David that his judgment doesn't match the character of his own actions. Nathan rebukes and corrects David, reminding him of all the Lord has done for him. And then Nathan shows David the punishment that sin brings. And so Nathan knows his friend. He knows who David is. And he has the boldness to rebuke him and to correct him. And so point number one is this this morning. Church family is this. Number one is do people know the real you? Do people know the real you? Who is your Nathan? Church, do you have people in your life, godly friends, that love you enough to speak the truth to you? Godly friends. Do you have friends that know you fully? I feel very, very blessed to say that I have five. Um, They're the groomsmen in my wedding. I have two best friends that were best friends since seventh grade. God used seventh grade youth group to give me two best friends back home in Kentucky. Evan and Jeremy are their names. These were my best men. They were, have every right to speak into my life. And then here, working camps and summer camps and doing ministry together, I have three friends, Hunter, Madison, and Zach, all three of which have full authority to speak into my life. These are the guys that I play golf with. These are the guys that I have lunch with. These are the guys that ask me hard, difficult questions about my marriage, about my life, about my ministry, about everything about me. I hold nothing back from them. These are men that I respect so much. Nathan knows David. He loves him enough to speak the truth into his life and correct him. Nathan rebukes David out of love. I want to read this quote to you, and this is from someone who is not a believer. This is someone that is actually a, a rather raunchy comedian, but I think this, this, uh, this is crazy that this comes out of his mouth, okay? And so this is, this is what it says. Our culture has accepted two huge lies. The first is that if you disagree with someone's lifestyle, you must fear or hate them. The second is that to love someone means that you agree with everything they believe, say, or do. Both are nonsense. You don't have to compromise convictions to be compassionate. So true. That is the great theologian Dave Chappelle. (laughs) But how is that possible, right? How is a non-believer, how is someone that like obviously doesn't know Christ, he sees that. Right? He sees that, listen, that you don't have to agree with like, every single thing a person does in order to love them. Let me ask you a question. Do you believe your pastor loves you? I hope so. He tells you every week. Okay? So Pastor Kenneth loves you. He tells you every week. But let me ask you a question. Do you think he approves of every single thing in your life and every single thing that you do? Parents, you love your children. You love them. Do you agree and just let them do whatever they want? No, because that's not unloving. That's not loving. You don't have to compromise convictions to be compassionate towards someone. What a friend Nathan is to David. What a friend. He knows who the real David is. He knows the man after God's own heart. And so I want to show you this. Our ministers of magnification are going to put this up on the screen. If you look at which, which David is the real David? And if you look at this, you see in 1 Samuel 16 all the way up to 2 Samuel chapter 10, David is an eager holy warrior. And then in 2 Samuel chapter 11 through 20, he's remaining in the palace. In 
early 1 Samuel, he marries honorably, and then in 2 Samuel, he's committing adultery with Bathsheba. And then he protects Saul's life. He cuts off a piece of his robe and says, listen, bro, I could have killed you, but he doesn't. And then he's plotting Uriah's death. And then the beginning, he's decisive, and he's great, and he's making great decisions, and then he becomes indecisive. His prayers are effective, and then his prayers are ineffective. And then he's fearless when he's outnumbered, and now he's taking a census fearfully. He attracts thousands of followers in the beginning, and then slowly he is losing and losing followers. So the question is, which is the real David? I thought this was the man after God's own heart, right? I thought this was, who is the real David? And so when thinking about the king of someone that lived a double life, someone that pretended and had act like they had it all together, when I was looking through the Bible, the perfect example of this is who? This is Judas. <laughs> Judas, right? That as he's sitting there, when the disciples, when Jesus says, hey guys, one of y'all is going to betray me, not one of the disciples went, Judas, totally him. Right? They said, no, who? One of us is going to betray you? Is it me? Not one of them were like, obviously Judas, right? Like not, not one of them knew. They were like, what do you mean? Is it me? Who's going to betray you? <laughs> Judas is so close to Jesus and nobody knows. And this is the scary reality, church. This is so scary. And I want to just put this before you. It is possible to be near the Lord without ever having a relationship with the Lord. It is possible to be near the Lord and never have a relationship with the Lord. That means that you can come to church. That means you can sing worship songs. That means you can help an old lady across the street with tennis balls on her walker. That means you can do all these good things. You can have this life without ever encountering the God of the universe, without ever encountering who we sing worship songs to in the morning, without ever encountering the Jesus of the Bible. And so a lot of us, if we're honest, we get away with most of our sin. Maybe no one ever finds out. Maybe we don't let people close enough even to see it. We have so much baggage carried on of all the weight and the pressure of all the stuff where we've messed up before and we carry it, but no one else sees it. And so, church, do you have someone in your life that knows you? Do you have someone that fully knows you? And then the second point is this, is that God truly does know you. God truly knows you. God knows everything there is about you. God is omniscient. Okay, big words. Those are the word mayonnaise. We got it. Okay, omniscient, all-knowing, omnipresent, everywhere at all times. Okay, so let me break it down to you this way, church. Okay, God knows your Instagram. He knows your Snapchat and your TikTok. He knows the accounts you follow, the DMs you've sent. He knows every single Facebook message that you've sent. He knows everything in your neighborhood group, me. Okay, okay. He knows all of that. He knows the Spotify playlist. He knows the Netflix shows you watch and your HBO watch history. He knows the movies. He knows the language you use at work. He knows the language you use at school. He knows the language you use at rush hour and also in the carpool line. Okay? God knows all of that. He knows your internet search history. Just because you deleted it does not mean that he does not know that. Okay? The Lord knows every sin, your deepest and darkest. And church, that should be freeing. He knows everything that you've done. He knows everything that you're going to do. And he loves you. He loves you. That should be freeing. God knows all your junk. 
Every time you've messed up and loves you regardless. Loves you anyway. And this is where we see Jesus. This is the perfect best friend in Jesus who always tells the truth in perfect love. He tells the truth in love. Okay, we see this all throughout Scripture. In John chapter 4, the woman at the well, she's going at a very odd time. And Jesus goes and sits next to her and he starts having a conversation. He says, tell me about your husband. And she says, I don't have one. And he said, you're right in that. You actually have five. And in that moment, there's so much truth. He recognizes what her life has been. And, and then in the most merciful and gracious way, he reveals himself to her as the Christ. And she runs off and she says, this is a man that told me everything there is to know about me. Could he be the Messiah? We see this again in a few chapters later when the woman's caught in adultery, John chapter 7 and 8. The Pharisees come and they bring a woman caught in the act and throw her at Jesus' feet. And this is very odd. Jesus doodles in the dirt. <laughs> they're trying to get a response and they're trying to get Jesus to say something. And Jesus says, if anyone is without sin, go ahead and throw a stone. That would be an act, adultery, that was condemned to death. What should we do with her, Jesus? And he says, if any of you all have any have any sin, don't have any sin, go ahead. Go ahead, throw, throw a rock. And it says, one by one, they walked away. And as the woman is there, she looks up at Jesus, and Jesus says, where are your accusers? She says, sir, they're not there. And Jesus says, I don't condemn you either. What a loving act. And then in a quick sentence, he says, go and sin no more doesn't excuse her sin, doesn't act like it's not there, doesn't just put some icing around it, okay, and say, oh, well, let's just cover up that mistake. He says, listen, no, no, go and sin no more. I don't condemn you. And out of that love, out of that mercy of Jesus, he compels her to go and sin no more. What a friend we have in Jesus. What a friend we have in him. And so the question to you is what place are you pretending? Who is the real you? Is it here? Is it at home? Your options are one of two things. You're a believer in Jesus who struggles looking like the world. Sometimes we fall into sin, we fall into things that we shouldn't, that we need to repent of. Or number two, you put on a show here at church thinking you have everyone fooled. You're a good guy or a nice lady. And this is, it's a fake faith that is wrapped up in morality and Alabama kindness. And so let me be really clear on this, church. I'm not, I'm not trying to create anyone to doubt their salvation. Okay, I tell students this all the time. They've heard this illustration a million times. Pastor J.D. Greer puts it like this. The reason why you know you are you can't have assurance of salvation. You can know that you're saved, but the reason why you know that you're sitting in a chair right now is because you're sitting in a chair, right? You might not necessarily remember the moment that you came down and said, okay, at, you know, 9, 17, we sat down, boop, like wrote it right down your Bible, right? You might not know that exact moment, but if you examine your life right now, if you look at yourself, you are all sitting. Same is true for a believer, when you say, am I saved? Do I know Jesus? Do I have a relationship with Jesus? You examine, you look at your life and say, yeah, I'm in a relationship with him right now. Because 
I have one. I have a relationship. Maybe it's distant. Maybe it's, it's dry. But I have a relationship with him. I've put my faith in him. I've trusted in him. And if you're sitting there this morning, you say, listen, I don't know. Well, I would love to have that conversation with you. We'd love to talk about how you can follow and repent and follow Jesus. And so, who is the real you? Who is the real David, right? Who is the real David? As the story comes to a close, David does have consequences for his sin. His son with Bathsheba dies. His son with Bathsheba dies. However, his next son with Bathsheba would be a man named Solomon. Followed by a fourth child that David would name after his best friend, Nathan. And the lineage of these two men would go down and down and down and down to a man named Joseph and a girl named Mary. How amazing is God to turn our brokenness into mosaic masterpieces? To turn those difficult situations into moments where we just see the glory of God. And so, as we move into a time of response, let's look at how David responded. Verse 13, chapter 12. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, oh, so good, Mm, so good. The Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. David doesn't make excuses. David doesn't run. He doesn't, he owns his sin and he says, Lord, I have sinned against you. This is who David is. This is the real David. This is the man after God's own heart. This is David's repentant heart. Church, just like David, when our sin is laid before us, we can either conceal it or we can reveal it. We can cover up and conceal our sin or we can reveal it. And so this is the gospel, that David deserves death, murder and adultery. Again, both crimes punishable by death. But God shows David incredible, incredible mercy in this moment. And so Kevin is going to come up and he's going to play for us. And as we call to respond, I want to read a passage of scripture over you. And this is how David responds. And he wrote a psalm. This is Psalm 51. This is David's heart when, when he realizes and recognizes to just hear these words. So if you want to do this, if you want to bow your heads and just hear these words said over you, if you want to just get in a place, if you want to have a moment just where you can get alone with God, I want you to hear these words spoken over you this morning. Whether it's sin that you're dealing with, whether it's a hard situation, whether life is just spinning into chaos, I have no idea. But in a room this size, I know that there are many of us that are struggling. Many of us that would long for a friend to come alongside them, to tell them the truth. And so, hear these words said over you this morning. This is Psalm 51. To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone in to Bathsheba, Verse 1, it says, Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. 
For I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin. Did my mother conceive me? Behold, you delight in truth, in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation. And my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness, O Lord. Open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. 